Geez, what the hell was that song? That was um, "Take Me to Your Ladder." I'll see your leader later. Is uh, Eric there? Can you hear me? Yes, I'm right here. Oh, okay, hey. good. How are you, Eric? I'm excellent. How are you doing? I'm doing Great. good. I was uh, furiously trying to get through more of your book today. I think I got up to chapter eleven. So, as I told him here before the show, uh, if there's any parts of the book that I didn't get to that uh, you want to discuss, just please say, you know, why were you so lazy? This is the real interesting <laughs> part of the book. Let's please talk about this so that that won't <laughs> be any problem. Sounds um, good. You're in D.C., right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yep. Yep. Our nation's capital. Let's uh, pull the... Uh, Writing Mysterioso, Mysterioso intro. Oh, what song do you want me to play at the end? I'll tell you. I'll ask you that now. I always let the guests pick any song they want to hear at the end or have at the end. Uh, uh, any song. Wow. Um, uh, yeah, I'm kind of drawing a blank there. <laughs> yeah, think about it during the show. and we'll, okay, I'll ask good. you at the end. Let okay. me do the uh, anti-ETH uh, intro. That seems most appropriate, I okay. guess, for this okay. one. Although we won't really be talking about UFOs, but that's fine. It's very uh, relevant uh, to what we're going to talk about. Okay. No, the the whole extraterrestrial thing is not uh, not a viable solution to this. We, we need to go through a turning point in the study of of this whole domain, away from ideology. We're not here to prove that we're being visited by, you know, aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that the um, that this that this phenomenon is um, comes from, comes from some sort of domain of pure information. And the fact that it can interact with us at all suggests that uh, that we inhabit the domain. It's also pure information. Are we uh, go conditioned here? Yes. in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Radio Mysterioso? 
thankful for that long intro because it allows me to make sure all my stuff's working. I didn't have my backup recording going, which is very stupid. Now I have the backup recording going. You still there, Eric? I'm still here, Greg. All right. Uh, let me do the uh, intro, which the only intro I have is the one you have on your site. Uh, Eric is a science writer with a PhD in anthropology and a professional background working for organizations and government institutes conducting archaeology, psychology, and neuroscience research. And he says in his spare time, he meditates, reads, read, rereads, cooks, and collect obscure 70s vinyl. Uh, We mentioned that here um, right before we came on the air. What kind of obscure 70s vinyl? I'm I'm really into like, I'm really into 70s soundtracks. I have to say, well, I I love, you know, 70s film in general, but uh, there's some, not only, you know, great movies were made in the seventies, but they all had really great soundtracks. And I'm like, uh, I don't know. I'm just really into, into collecting, you know, just kind of, kind of obscure, weird seventies. Uh, uh, yeah. Seventies soundtracks. It was mm. sort of puts, you know, it puts me in a mood. <laughs> you listen to them while you're reading. I'm sorry. While you're writing. Um, I used to when I was, um, I, I used to, but not, not anymore. I, I find that I can't listen to anything while I'm writing these days, but, uh, no, just, just for, just, just as atmosphere in the house <laughs> and I, and it, and it, and I'm trying to sort of indoctrinate my young daughter and, you know, sort of the, uh, aesthetic <laughs> of the 1970s in general. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've got, I've got a bit of that. Uh, yeah. My vinyl goes all over the place. I got a weird music show that's on a, uh, WFMU actually. Um, oh yeah. Do oh, yeah. are you prepared to discuss what sort of government institutes and organizations you're doing the kind of work you do? Oh, I'm a science writer. I'm just a science writer. I'm nothing. It's nothing, nothing, nothing interesting or spooky. It's, <laughs> uh, just, I've, yeah, I've worked for a lot of nonprofits in DC and government oh, and, and whatever, uh, a, a wide range of, of stuff. I'm a health science writer these days. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, does the I guess the anthropology degree helps a bit in that? Yeah, the anthropology degree has been surprisingly uh, useful. It's sort of a versatile, uh, a versatile degree that that kind of can go in different directions. So yeah, what the hell's going on with anthropology? And then suddenly you're writing a book on retro causality. That's kind of a big leap. So I actually wanted to ask you: um, you read the book, and it sounds like you're not an anthropologist, but you're trained in physics and. Uh, semantics and things like that and it's uh it's fascinating to me how did you how did you get pulled towards the retrocausal subject of time loops well the you know the origin well i've i haven't you know i i the moment you know the instant i got my phd in anthropology in 2000 i left you know and didn't look back uh at academia at all and became a science writer and worked in various fields uh psychology and 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 you know neuroscience now and uh i uh the, as far as the origins of the retro causation and precognition stuff uh that uh, really actually goes back to a couple of, of UFO sightings I had actually no. in two thousand in 2009. Yeah. Um, I, uh, it was a sort of a, a year of upheaval for me and appropriately enough, uh, I, you know, saw a couple of UFOs within a month of each other in, in the summer of 2009. And I mean, they weren't anything earth shattering, you know, they were just sort of distant, you know, lights moving weirdly, but it, it, uh, it, got me to start reading about the topic, you know, and until then I really had not been aware that there was a really interesting 
uh, literature on the subject of UFOs. And, uh, and of course, as anyone who goes down the rabbit hole of UFOs does, mm-hmm. one eventually encounters the work of Jacques Vallée. I, I very quickly encountered the work of Jacques Vallée, and I quickly uh, went down the rabbit hole of Jacques Vallée's mind, you know, and, and, you know, here's, here's someone who's a arguing that, you know, this is not you know, spaceships from other planets and B it has something to do with psychic phenomena. It has something to do with ESP and, uh, the, you know, most people point to, you know, passport to Magonia as his, you know, masterpiece. I, the book that really did it for me was invisible college. Um, Mm. and I just, uh, you know, to this day, it's one of my, you know, it's certainly my favorite valet book and it's my, I just, uh, just something about that book and it's weird kind of personal journey through, you know, this subject of UFOs and the remote viewing research being done, you know, at SRI when he was there and, you know, characters like Uri Geller and, and, you know, Virgin Mary size. I mean, it's just, uh, such a, it just, entranced me and i i had been until that point very much a you know i had a materialist scientific education uh i had no problem with the idea of ufos as spacious or whatever that that you know i had had zero problem with that but esp i've always i was always a very a skeptic about i always just assumed that you know this was um you know, fallacies of whatever memory and reasoning and all that. Uh, so that, so to, to have someone, you know, a mind like Jacques Vallée, uh, uh, saying, no, this is, it's, it's real and, and UFOs have something to do with it really. Wow. That was an eye opener. And it, and it really led me down the path to, to, to studying ESP research. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and actually, you know, and, and actually, and like a lot of people who, who go down the rabbit hole of UFOs, you kind a lot of, a lot of people reach a dead end <laughs> yeah. the subject because you reach a point where you go, this is just, has become no longer enjoyable. It's become, you know, it's, 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 it's such a morass. It's such a swamp of, of, you know, belief, misinforma- and, uh, misinformation, disinformation, yeah. belief systems, egos, all, all that, all egos, all the stuff that was obviously really depressing to Jacques Vallée in his late <laughs> books. I mean, you know, the stuff that he was writing about, you know, <clears throat> uh, I think it's confrontations and, you know, it's just a yeah. depressing, depressing book and, uh, and messages, messages of deception the same way. And, you know, yeah, I was, it's my favorite, going, unfortunately. <laughs> Yeah, like I, you know, I was sort of getting tired of it, but the, it was the ESP stuff that really, right. really captured me, and uh-huh. and uh, and so you know, I was I was blogging about it, and um, and wound up you know blogging a lot about precognition, especially, and that and then it was sort of that that evolved into then the research that that wound up uh, being in time loops. So that's a long answer to your question. Uh, we like long but, answers. Yeah, well, it wasn't you know it wasn't anthropology that led me there, but oddly enough, um, and this is of course in the chapters that you did not read, you lazy you know bum. But <laughs> but it does it does actually it does actually come back to anthropology a bit at the end. I mean, it's really kind of the direction I'm going with this subject is thinking about uh, precognition as a cultural phenomenon, not just as an individual phenomenon. And the sort of the follow up book that I'm working on. 
um, <clears throat> or one of two follow-up what books I'm working on right now uh, is really about that, about precognition as a cultural factor. And um, uh, I, I think that's a really interesting, totally untapped uh, area of study. And uh, yeah. so I am kind of bringing it around to these questions that were important for me as a grad student, you know, almost, God, almost 30 years ago now or 25 years ago. What changes would we see in a post-linear world or a post, <laughs> you know, uh, you, you know what I'm saying there? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's when you a, say that's socially, a, because that means just not like a bunch of people sitting around a table talking about it or a few scientists saying, look, this is really important. But how does that propagate into the culture and what, what effects might that have? Uh, yeah, that's a that's uh, that's an awesome question. I don't that that I don't have a vision for mm. what I'm referring to. What I'm thinking of is this is a question that was important uh, in anthropology, cultural anthropology back in the early 90, late 80s, early 90s when I was in grad school, uh, which is the question of what we called symbolic motivation. Like how do how do how does the the mind, the individual human psyche engage with cultural symbols? How do cultural symbols become motivating for the individual? How do individuals in their personal experience contribute to and help shape and direct cultural symbolism and so forth? This kind of interaction, this kind of constant, you know, uh, cycle between yeah. the, indivi- the individual mind and the, and, and the, and culture as sort of a material, uh, 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 encoding of, of symbols and meanings, um, a lens and, and Tim and, you know, psychoanalysis was like probably or psychoanalytic theory was a very powerful tool at that point. Um, and I think it still is, I think it's still the most powerful tool that we have for kind of thinking or it's not a tool. It's, it's a, yeah, it's not a method or a tool. It's a, it's a, just a theory. It's a, it's a sort of theoretical theoretical framework. Yeah, framework thinking, yeah. thinking. Yeah. And you did go uh, on quite a bit about Freud and his, uh, in, in the book and, and his effects. And, you know, um, yeah. I didn't realize that Freud had been, uh, debunked or, or thrown away. So, so, so widely, I did, I really didn't know that until I started reading your chapters on, uh, background of Freud and his, uh, effects at the time. And since then, yeah, well, I mean, it depends on who you ask whether he's been debunked or thrown away. I mean, you know, in the in in academia, no. I mean, it's like you know, people who are who are either in the humanities, you know, Freud and psychoanalytic theater, theory are still very relevant. Hmm. But uh, in the wider culture, he is, you know, no one talks about Freud, uh, no one reads Freud, and you know, and certainly in in psychology, uh, or or you know, the brain science and so forth, you know, Freud is just ancient history and no one thinks about him at all. Mm. Um, uh, and there were a lot of, uh, criticisms of his work in the 1970s, 1980s, uh, and, and, you know, social movements had a lot to do with it. You know, feminism had a lot to do with it. And then the, the kind of satanic panic and that sort of stuff. It's almost impolite to refer to him anymore or or politically incorrect to refer to Freud at this point. Yeah. Yeah. In some contexts. And so when you say that you're a Freudian or that you like Freud, you kind of have to like, uh, backpedal a little bit or, or kind of like explain what you mean. Um, but I, uh, one of the key, one of the arguments I make in the book is that uh, Freud was a uh, 
or, or, Freud, or Freud's theory of the unconscious was a theory of precognition without realizing it, that he was, uh, he was essentially mapping out uh, how precognition works and how precognition can work um, just without realizing that everything that he was calling the unconscious was essentially what I'm calling cognition or consciousness displaced in time that, 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 uh, that all of these effects that he was studying, you know, things and, and we're, we're most familiar with it in the context of dreams and slips of the tongue and symptom, you know, neurotic symptoms, yeah. uh, yeah. creativity, artistic creativity, all these things that we sort of, when you hear the word unconscious, those are the things that come to mind. Well, all of those things, uh, arguably are manifestations of precognition. Um, and that's the case that I'm make, making in my, in my book. And, and so basically for, we need to, there needs to be a return to Freud in pre in, uh, I'm sorry, in parapsychology, uh, a kind of, let's go back to this guy and, and all the people in his tradition who were really studying these phenomena, not realizing what they were. I mean, they had, you know, they had a model that this was all about the past. This is all about your past. It's all about your early childhood. Uh, every time, you know, every Freudian interpretation classically <laughs> points you back to something in your childhood or whatever. Well, that was a mistake. But, but if you substitute, you know, if you, if you replace that, that backward looking orientation with a forward orientation, a, a precognitive orientation to, to, uh, to upheavals and rewards and traumas in our future. Uh, it, it is incredibly powerful. And one of the, and, and this, the surprising thing for me, and I didn't expect this going into this research or writing this book at all was that Freud himself turns out to have been this incredible precog. I mean, he was, yeah, yeah. you discuss uh, that in the book and how he sort of fought against it every time he was saying, yes. well, this is all in the past. It has to do with our subconscious. And it, it's almost like he knew that's what he was pointing towards, but he really didn't want to acknowledge he couldn't it. Face it. He couldn't face it. Exactly. So he himself is this perfect example of exactly the kind of repression that he's, <laughs> that he's talking about. Yeah. And so, I mean, you just, uh, I think the study of precognition just has to confront Freud and deal with Freud, uh, because he's just a fascinating figure. Um, you know, and, and again, like I said, when you say that you're, you know, that you're interested in Freud, you kind of have to then qualify it by saying, well, you know, I don't believe everything he said was, was correct. I don't believe, you know, he was right about, you know, penis envy and all, you know, there's a lot of a million things you kind of make fun of Freud for, you know, he was a product of his times like anyone is. Mm -hmm. And you know, a lot of stuff he said was, you know, you just, you can, you can throw it out. But, but the basic premise of his work that we are kind of shaped you know our behavior is shaped our feelings our moods our motivations are kind of shaped by this kind of uh i, I like think of it like almost like dark matter you know in physics it's <laughs> yeah this, it's, it's this invisible see the thing. effects but uh see the effects but you can't point to it yeah and i think there's actually a very good reason you can't actually zero in on it and point to it and that's because it is an influence from the future and our our science currently isn't equipped to talk about that and it re you know, resolutely de denies such things. It falls under the category of teleology, which was mm -hmm. you know, the big bad word that, that, 
that enlightenment science uh, tried to get rid of. Yeah. And that was basically the, you know, the whole premise of enlightenment science was to reject anything that, that smacks of teleology. But you Mm got to remember that teleology back in Newton's day, that implied God that implied, you know, divine, you know, will or something like that. And that's what, that's what they were rejecting. And I would still reject that. I would say, you know, by teleology, I don't mean some like divine purpose. I mean, simply that causality, there's an aspect of causality that is, that is retrograde, that that works in reverse. And the future does influence the past. And this is no longer a, this is no longer a radical statement. In fact, it hasn't been a radical, a radical statement really in physics for, for, for a long, long time. I mean, the, the idea of retro causation has been there almost from the beginning Hmm. of quantum physics, but it was thought to be untestable, uh, because of Heisenberg indeterminacy, or I'm sorry, Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Right. So it's thought to be uh, inherently untestable. Well, in fact, that is being proved not to be the case. And I, I discuss in my book, uh, some recent experiments that really strongly, uh, suggest that the retro causal interpretation of quantum mechanics uh, is, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's due for a, a resurgence. And in fact, you see it, if you follow the, the science news, uh, there, you know, every month there's a story on retro causation or, uh, some new experiment, yeah. some new or uh, they, theory. They, they refer to it, couch it as time travel or something like that. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, there'll always, you know, there'll always be some cutesy kind of reference to Back to the Future or something like that. But yeah. it's, it's, <laughs> it's, no, it's real. And and quantum computing is where you're going to really going to see it. I mean, that's that's where they're really demonstrating this. Mm-hmm. Uh, quantum entangled uh, circuits or quantum entangled systems, uh, you can perform computations that defy the causal order. They're they're showing that 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 quantum entangled systems can defy. Uh, you know, if you, you perform a computation in a quantum computer. Uh, it can defy, uh, you know, the, the ordinary, ordinary order of causation, which uh, points to an alternative interpretation of things like entanglement. Uh, that entanglement is not, if the if the retrocausal interpretation really holds, entanglement is not a matter of non-locality, which is the way we usually think of it. Entanglement mm-hmm. uh, is time, a matter of of retrograde causation. It's a, it's a, it's a zigzagging causation between two particles that have become entangled. You know, a, a measurement of particle A goes back in time to influence uh, particle B back when they were uh, entangled in the first place. So it's, it's like this zigzagging causation across uh, space-time, uh, which is a radically different way of, of looking at all these, you know, quote-unquote spooky quantum effects uh, and my money is totally on that, on that this is going to really, uh, you know, be the direction of quantum physics, uh, in the next, you know, few decades. Uh, oh, the proof of concept through quantum computing, uh, more than just the, the, uh, experience you were talking about, like, uh, bouncing photons off a mirror that measures the pressure and all that, but an actual real, um, real world, uh, uh, application of it. Well, that's my, that's what I'm speculating about. I mean, I, I, I can't prove that and I'm not a quantum, you know, okay, I, I will, you know, I'm an anthropologist. I'm not a, you know, I've spent the last three years, you know, immersed, uh, buried in quantum physics stuff. So I feel, you know, at this point I'm able to talk about this, you know, with, you know, I, I certainly don't have the authority of, of a quantum physicist, but, 
but I've read enough that that's to me, that's where this is going. And, uh, you know, we'll have to probably give it a few years, but, um, and I, of course I, I don't have the professional, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't need to not, not mention these, these crazy possibilities and risk losing my, <laughs> my, my, you know, funding as, as, you know, a physicist. So I can kind of, I can say, you're, you know, you're, you're slightly immune. Things. In fact, you might be I'm totally immune. immune. I'm not, I'm slightly immune, but you know, there are a, a lot of, uh, very respectable, uh, bona fide physicists saying these same things. Mm-hmm. And I, I quote many of them in my book. So, so I'm not just talking out my butt. <laughs> <laughs> Let's so. back up for a second in case people don't know what's going on here. Maybe talk about what, what the, the book's called Time Loops, but it's basically about the concept of retrocausality. And to me, it's almost like a shot across the bow. Hey, people, this has been going on for a while. This is what's going on in science. It has incredible implications for what happens in the future, just like you said, um, with quantum computing. And maybe you can explain to people what retrocausality is and uh, how you have to basically wrap your mind around time not being linear anymore, which uh, was explained to me by Dean Radin when I interviewed him years ago, and it took him five mm-hmm. hours to get me to understand what he was talking about. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he was very patient to explain it to me, to me until I spit back at him basically what he was saying. So, yes. And it's very hard to get out of that because of, you know, just our culture and the way we grow up and the way reality looks to us and what we're told and how things happen. The linearity thing is very hard to get out of. So maybe you can sort of disabuse us of that uh, by explaining what your idea of retrocausality, well, what the idea of retrocausality yeah. is. Sure. Yeah. Well, the idea of retrocausality is that, uh, that, you know, causes, some kinds of causes can happen in reverse, that an effect, that an effect can precede its cause. Okay. Now that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's, and it is very hard to wrap our minds around. That hurts. Yeah, (laughs) it does. It does hurt. But you know, when you see examples of it, like Mm -hmm. for instance, in fiction, right, it can start to make a little bit of sense. And like uh, the best, honestly, the best, the best thing I can recommend to people who want to understand what I'm talking about um, is watch the movie Arrival if you haven't already watched it. That's one of my favorite movies. I have two shows devoted just to that talking about that it's, movie. It's a freaking great, great movie, and yeah. it's you know I, I think it's it's my it's my favorite science fiction movie of the last several years. Mine too, and, actually. And uh, and it is you know it's so you know it's just a, it's a it's a wonderful story just told just very simply and, and beautifully. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's all kinds of good things about this film, but one of them is that, uh, this, the, the main character in the, in the film, Louise Banks, I believe is her name. Yeah. Uh, uh, by trying to learn the written language of these aliens visiting earth, uh, she finds herself, um, stepping out of that linear, thinking that linear causal thinking that we're all so entrenched in mm-hmm. and she and she realizes in the course of this that some visions that she's been having uh are actually of events in her future and uh and at one key point in the film uh i, mean, I guess i shouldn't i shouldn't 
say it because it's a spoiler and it's no it's a, go well, ahead and ruin it i mean my idea is that no. what do you do if you know your future i mean that's kind of the tagline of the movie well there you go i guess you're right so so, <laughs> so you're right so okay the spoiler will only make it better oh, okay she, you know, she <laughs> spoil so, away yeah so okay so at this you know, the climactic moment of the of the film she's trying to basically save the earth from you know destroying itself by going to war with these aliens and she what she needs to stop this this chinese general from launching an attack on these aliens and uh but you know how can she do it she's cut off from contact uh with the outside world um when she suddenly has a a vision of an event in the future when this general shows her his cell phone and from that, she learns his phone number. So she picks up a cell phone and calls him. And then she again has more of this same vision where he is telling her the last words that his wife spoke to him before she died. And so she, in Mandarin, Chinese, uh, recites to him over the phone his wife's dying words. And this makes him listen to what she has to say. Mm-hmm. And it's this, you know, it's this very powerful moment in the film and it's, and it, and it's, it's mind bending, but because of the way it's presented in the film, you, you get it. And this event in the future, uh, that she is having a pre mental preview of is a celebration of peace in the aftermath of essentially her own actions, you know, saving the world from destruction. So it's a time loop. It's essentially, uh, and that's, and that's what I'm, and that's actually what I, the kind of, I think, uh, what I think I'm bringing to the subject of precognition that I think is a little bit original is that I'm, as I'm arguing that, you know, not only does precognition exist, but it produces these time loops, these, 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 these causally circular situations where, where, uh, effects precede their causes and, and your actions contribute to those causes in the future that have an effect in the past. And, and so that's what you're seeing in this film arrival. That's what this film is about essentially. Um, and, uh, and you know, one of the, and you were talking about language and, and how we're sort of imprisoned in our language. Well, well that's one of the premises of this book mm-hmm. or I'm sorry, this movie is yeah. based on a story by Ted Chang. Yeah. Um, story of your life. Premise, yeah. Right. But the premise is that it's our language There are, you know, li- linear, uh, language, you know, if, you know, a, then B and so forth, um, that makes it hard for us to think in this circular way that the aliens in the movie are able to think in. Um, and so by learning their language, Louise is able to sort of break out of this and, and she becomes precognitive essentially. I never realized actually their language, um, capitulates what you're talking about because everything they write is in circles. Exactly. It's (laughs) circles. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and believe it or not, well, uh, one of the things I observed about this movie, um, I was in the midst of writing my book at this point. And it was like, the mm. movie had a huge, powerful impact on me. I'm going, my God, this is what I'm writing about. I was so excited. But, you know, I realized I'd had all these precognitive experiences around the movie and, and all my friends did too. Really? And it's a really interesting phenomenon that, that some like pu- powerful piece of writing or art that is about psychic phenomena in some way acts as kind of an attractor yes. <laughs> for the phenomena. So like all my friends, uh, had 
powerful precognitive experiences centered on that film. Hmm. Um, uh, the day before I, the, the day before I, I, I saw it on opening. Night, yes, please. Uh, so, <laughs> we like these so, stories. Yeah. So I was so excited to see the film. Well, the, the day before or the afternoon before I was like randomly, uh, thinking about, you know, those Zen brushstroke circles. I was thinking about, uh, a lecture that, that Daisette Suzuki had given, uh, in the 1950s. I was thinking about a book about John Cage who talked about these, you know, these Zen brushstroke circles that, you know, that the, and, the, and a lecture that Daisette Suzuki, it's just a random thought. Like, why the, why the hell am I thinking about Zen brushstroke circles? Well, I go to this movie, you know, that movie that night, this powerful movie, you know, and oh my God, they're like, they're writing, circles. They're writing is all about those, those, and it looks, it's obviously, obviously based on those zen brushstroke yes. circles i never thought um, about that but yeah exactly amazing and and, the, and that afternoon the ear you know earworms are a great precognitive symptom and mm. the earworm in my head randomly again i had no reason to be thinking of this song but for some reason uh the simon and garfunkel's song it's all happening at the zoo <laughs> You remember that song from the '60s? Well, you know that that song, that yes. line going around again, and again in my head. Well, it's like that's that's a scene in the movie, a very powerful scene in the movie when the daughter, this daughter of this character, you know, is playing with these 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 clay animals, and the whole movie is kind of about a it's kind of a zoo situation, you know, they're they're like interacting with these aliens behind glass, you know, and it was like. You know, that song, why was that song playing in my head? Well, it's like, you know, these, these, you know, we are constantly, constantly getting impressions, uh, unconsciously, um, from our imminent future and it manifests in all these kinds of little, these kinds of ways. And these are the things, exactly the kinds of things that Freud studied. You know, he didn't have, they, they, he didn't live in a music saturated age. So, you know, earworms were not a thing for (laughs) Freud. But, you know, he would have, if he was living today, he would have written a book about, you know, earworms and the unconscious or something like that. Yeah. Random, you know, your random thoughts, random trains of thought are, are gently nudged in certain directions by things we're, we're going to experience, um, imminently, you know, within the next day or two and, and dreams especially are like that. Uh, so, you know, like, so, but anyway, as I was saying, like, I, I wound up, I was, con, I was having email conversations with a lot of, uh, friends who are open-minded about this sort of stuff, uh, who all saw the film on that open week, opening weekend. And they all had similar experiences. Um, some even more, a very remarkable experiences in some cases, uh, around the film. So, uh, anyway, so that there again, there's another long answer to some question that I don't even remember that you asked, but, but no, no, uh, it was, it, it answered the question directly. Yeah. We were talking about arrival and about the circular nature of things. And I, I, yeah. you know, what's funny is if you look at the writing Mysterioso site down the right side, there's a bunch of little icons and messages and stuff. There is a recurring looping, uh, animated gif of, um, one of the aliens, uh, uh, spraying one of the circles onto the glass in front of, uh, Oh Yeah. Right. Well, there you you go. There you go. Yeah. I will mention that when you were saying about uh, these things happening, I think I got the contagion, too, because as I was reading your book, especially uh, night before last, I had a dream with a friend in it, and the dream had a dog in it. And uh, the next day I wake up, and she's posted a picture of herself with a dog that looks almost exactly like the dog I saw in the dream. Sure. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, at this how point, much I contagion am, are you getting off of this book, you know, for yourself and other people? Uh, I'm getting a, uh, a, a fair amount of it, actually. And uh, but but again, this is something that, well, for, you know, for instance, um, Jeffrey Kripal, who I'm sure your listeners know, I mean, he gets this all the time. I mean, his books, obviously, he's very prolific in writing about about these kinds of phenomena. Uh, not yeah, only there's a, loop, a lot of yeah. other phenomena. You know, well, he, I mean, I think he's bombarded. He's bombarded by by these kinds of you know, people having these kinds of psychic experiences. Yeah, it's just uh, normal to him at the, this point. On his books, you know, yeah. same thing happened with you know, of course, Whitley Strieber, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I'm getting, I'm, I'm, uh, yes, I'm, I'm getting it as well. I've, I've, uh, I, uh, a lot of people have reached out to me um, with very interesting stories. Yeah. You uh, make a really good point, and this is, uh, I was talking, uh, uh, my last uh, interview where I was nervous as hell was with uh, Dean Radin again, mm-hmm. and uh, I told him, you know, when we first did an interview a few years ago, you told me something that stuck with me, and the, the phrase was, meaning is a dimension, and he said, I don't remember saying that, but that's a great line. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, this was recapitulated in your book as I was reading it, which was very uh, inspiring to me. And it, it goes back to the idea that you, where you first start discussing earlier in the book, is that people, when they have a, a precognitive dream or a presentiment or something like that, they're not they're not foreseeing the future; they're re- foreseeing their personal reaction to hearing the news of whatever it is that yes. they're. And maybe you could go into that a little bit and how you know how how that's kind of upended ideas about. Uh, time and how we see time and how we see you know that you know when somebody is uh, you just discussed the titanic where people you were saying that people were you know had all these uh presentiments about the titanic sinking but you're you know you said well what they were doing was reacting to their hearing about the news of it not the actual event itself yes this is very <clears throat> this is very important and i'm not the first person to argue this by any means i mean this was this was first argued back in in 1927 Hmm. by J.W. Dunn. Oh, yes. Yeah, uh, I wanted to ask was, about that book, too. Yes. Well, let's let's talk about him because, you know, because really, really, I'm I'm uh, I'm he was the real pioneer in in the study of of precognition. Uh, J.W. Dunn uh, was a uh, well, first he was a soldier, uh, but then he, he was he was an English soldier, but then he became an aeronautical engineer back before there were en- aeronautical engineers. I mean, he was literally one of the first. I mean, he was designing, uh, you know, some of the first uh, biplanes, uh, very experimental kinds of designs, sort of flying wing type biplanes, things that never, you know, you never, never became commercial uh, type things, but he, he was designing some of the first high performance aircraft, um, in the, you know, 19 teens and twenties basically. Uh, and he, but as a sidelight, he, he noticed, um, early in his life that he was having, he occasionally had dreams that, that, uh, seemed to come true within the next you know, usually within the next day or two. Uh-huh. And so this became an interest of his and he eventually realized, well, he had a very, you know, he had an engineer's mind, which was very helpful here because, you know, he realized, well, you know, how do I know I'm not just deceiving myself? Um, I need to write these things down. So he started actually recording his dreams and, uh, being scientific in the way he studied them. Um, and 
he amassed a nice body of evidence for precognitive dreaming. Um, he, and, but the thing is he, because he had this engineer's mind, he had what I would call a forensic, uh, mind. He was, you know, he, this was a guy who literally like, you know, on, on some occasions he would study plane crashes. I mean, cause his planes would crash sometimes and he would study what happened. He had to study, he had to know exactly what had happened with that plane to make it crash. So he had a good, you know, he had this really brilliant mind who could pick apart the sequence in which things happened and so forth. Uh, well, he did this, he applied the same intellect to studying his own dreams and their relationship to events in his life. And what he quickly realized was that his dreams didn't foreshadow objective events in, in the world they were foreshadowings of his own in reading about the events in the media or in the news or however he got the news. So his most famous example of this, uh, and this is quoted in pretty much any book about him, uh, is, uh, yeah, this was in, I believe 1902, uh, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe 1900. Uh, the, he he was this is before he was an, an aeronautical engineer he was still a soldier he was fighting in the boer war in south africa and he was camped out with his regiment somewhere in the bush and he had this vivid dream of being on a french volcano uh, an, a french volcanic island uh and it was about to blow and he was he was trying to convince people that the island's about to blow 4,000 people are about to die because this island's about to blow. And he was trying to convince the authorities to evacuate the island, blah, blah, blah. So it's a very vivid dream. So he wakes up, and then within a, a couple days, uh, a, ma- a delivery of mail comes to the camp. And among the, the items of mail is the, 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 the newspaper. And the headline of the newspaper is uh, Montpellier, in Martinique, you know, uh, erupts, killing 40,000 people. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like he's weirded out by this as anyone else would be. He's sort of excited, <laughs> excited, excited and weirded out by the fact that he had just dreamed of this event. He had, he had, the, the figure in his dream had been 4,000 and it actually took him several years to realize that he misread the uh, the the headline as four thousand, not forty thousand. Right. Um, but here's the thing: the the ultimate death toll wound up being something like thirty six thousand, something like that. So I mean, he wasn't he wasn't precognizing some objective fact in reality. He was precognizing his own his own impressions on reading a newspaper headline. Right. You know, he really pre, he was precognizing himself. Uh, his own experience of learning of the news. And this, I argue, is what is going on with, you know, premonitions of the Titanic disaster or premonitions of 9-11. You know, like many, 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 many people had premonitions, premonitory dreams, visions, etc. of 9-11. I did. Um, but we but we were everyone. And, I, you know, I would argue probably every probably every American had a precognitive dream about 9-11. We're just not attuned. Most people are not attuned to their dreams, you know, are not attuned to or not aware enough to realize that. But me either till I read your book. 
<laughs> well, you're yeah, you're going to start keeping a dream diary, aren't you? Yes, at the end of the <laughs> book, you actually said, if nothing else, I want to encourage people. I did read the last chapter, too, just to get your uh, um, uh conclusion on things and the one that stuck out with me is like if nothing else i would like people to start keeping dream journals because that will not only you know grow the database it's also good for each person individually absolutely absolutely and uh uh in in any case you know we but but you know most of most of us you know the vast majority of people in the united states you know were not directly affected by 9-11 we were affected by it as a news story it was an, as a, it was an unfolding news story uh, on CNN, you know, for most of us, and uh, and so that's what we were dreaming about, you know. That's and it was and 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 not just that, it's not the news story itself we're dreaming about. We're dreaming really. We're having a precognitive dream about our own reactions to it, our mm-hmm. own the sense, the meaning that we make, we personally make of that news, you know, learning that news or following that story. Um, and that's, uh, uh, so that's what I'm arguing in the book is that, that, that precognition is a, is it's the brain's connection to itself across time. And it's, uh, we're, we're, you know, these reactions, these reactions to powerful learning experiences, powerful emotional experiences, they reflux backward in time, uh, in our brain, which I suggest is, is a quantum computer. And I, there's, you know, lots of reasons to think that the brain is going to turn out to be a quantum computer, uh, that is, that is capable of transmitting information imperfectly, uh, certainly, but retrocausally to a degree. Yeah. uh, That also interested me too. I mean, the, the fact that uh, when people have these uh, precognitive dreams or presentiment or whatever you want to call them, they're never exact. It's never like, this is exactly what's going to happen. It's sort right. of like, um, you know, it's either sort of like it or symbolically, symbolically like it or whatever. And there's an, there's an obliqueness there. Um, yes, which is, which is exactly, which is one of the many reasons why we need a return to Freud in thinking about this, because it was Freud who first, who first thought about this strange oblique relationship uh between dreams and real life events uh or real life thought or or sort of waking thoughts you know the dreams don't represent things literally you know it you never have a, a literal there are exceptions to this certainly like the dreams of people with PTSD often will be very you know very obsessively literal like a video you know of a of a, an event but but most of our dreams most of the time not are not literal representations of events they're very oblique uh and and you know the the there are lots of arguments about why that is uh and of course freud had certain beliefs about that he you know he argued that uh, that dreams were fulfillments of repressed wishes. Well, that was probably not true. And there's, uh, you know, a lot of more recent thinking about, about the way dreams work that suggests that dreams are more like the encoding, the encoding of, of memories, according to the principles of the art of memory. If you're, if your listeners are aware of the art of memory, that was the, the, the methods that the ancients used, you know, to memorize speeches and books, you know, which was, they would, you know, you take associative. a associative, yeah, associative, you take associations and, and you construct, 
you know, vivid associate, associate, associative images uh, and, and, and attach them to things you want to remember. And, uh, and dreams seem to work according to that, that, that logic. So, you know, dreams are never going to be a direct representation of something, although occasionally they are. I mean, you do have, you know, very, you know, I've had a few very vivid precognitive dreams that were just like, you know, you know, almost exactly what I saw the next day. But most usually there's, there's the obliqueness there. Um, and the oblique, but the obliqueness is, is there's some, there's a genius to that obliqueness. And that's, that's the wonderful thing about Freud. If you, you know, if you've ever read Freud, read his case studies, read his book, the interpretation of dreams, you know, dreams, they dream, they have a genius to them. And when you kind of figure out that genius, uh, it's just, it's just mind blowing how, how brilliant your brain is, you know, and it's like, it gives you a window onto, you know, just even precognition aside, it gives you this window onto, onto the genius of our brains to construct these, uh, these just incredibly witty images to represent very complex thoughts. Uh, and, and when you realize that those, uh, that the complex thoughts they're often representing are in our future, it's even more mind blowing. Yeah, well, how would um, I don't know? You take you take for for an example, uh, if you have a dream and it's got this oblique imagery of it in it, um, how would you begin to even figure out what what would be happening in the in the future with with that dream? Um, I well, guess you, you only know in retrospect. That's that's just it. Yeah, this is not uh, this is not going to give you. Precognition does not. We cannot know the meaning of our precognitive dreams uh, until events come to pass. And this is not, you know, this well, that is why. Sucks. <laughs> uh, well, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. And I'm, I'm, you know, this is part of what I'm, where I'm going with with this research is like this is not about, um, you know, about making uh, predictions getting, that you can, you know, yes, act upon and all that. Well. Not completely. There is a dimension of that, and and there are people working on on developing developing precognition into into tools for forecasting uh, that can, to a degree, uh, maybe gain some sort of advantage in the future. Like I would mention, associative remote viewing. It's a mm-hmm. method uh, whereby um, you're essentially tying precognition to rewards. Uh, and uh, those rewards are sort of arbitrary, but they're tied to some sort of real world outcome that you're interested in. So when you get a bunch of so you get a, if you get a group of of associated remote viewers in a room uh, and uh, you can you can arguably uh, and I think demonstrably, at least according to the data I've seen, you can you, you can get real world. Uh, some sort of real world advantage, you know, for instance, in Las Vegas or in, you know, stock market type situation. So yeah, there is the potential for that. But I'm arguing that, you know, the, the, uh, honestly, uh, the, the, the big uh, benefits of, of precognition uh, for my thinking are as much spiritual as anything else, Mm. Uh, because you are essentially, you're getting this glimpse into uh, what I call the glass block universe, the uh, sort of the the fact that the future already exists, and the past by by extension still exists. Um, 
and it's a, just a it's a it's mind blowing to to have these experiences of of uh, realizing you've had a a precognitive dream uh, and uh, to uh, get this this palpable sense of of how our conscious I am reluctant to use the word consciousness but everyone does these days yeah well it's shorthand so you got to use it because shorthand you know how consciousness basically transcends uh the present moment and transcends time as we understand it uh it's a it's an incredibly incredibly powerful uh kind of experience um uh, especially when you start having these experiences again and again, and you have like people who have one precognitive dream, they'll go, wow, that was weird. That was kind of cool. But then they quickly start to doubt it. Um, mm-hmm. and it's, it's this, I, it's, it's actually a phenomenon that's, that's across the paranormal. It's not just precognition or psychic phenomena. I mean, pretty much any paranormal phenomenon people oh, yeah. will start, will start to doubt their own experience afterwards. Um, and it really took me. It's almost uh, like effect, de- de- decline yeah. effect, yeah. Yes, yeah, in a way. I, I don't know. I think there may it's be... It's obliquely like decline effect. <laughs> yeah, kind of. There, I think there may even be a term for it, and I'm blanking on it. But uh, there is just a way in which you just tend to dis- distrust your own experience. Yeah, well, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it's not reinforced by other yeah. experience, the people you know, right. the culture, the people who right. are telling you what reality is, all that. Right. All that. Exactly. So, uh, you need to build up, you know, start having these experiences again and again and again. And if you start keeping, you know, a very detailed daily dream journal, uh, start recording your, you know, synchronicities, start meditating and recording your sort of random trains of thought, you know, sort of any kind of meditation or mindfulness training helps with this because you can kind of, start to be able to tease apart, you know, why, you know, when your sort of trains of thought, you know, have some ordinary cause because of something that happened five minutes ago, or when you're start, you're randomly thinking about something and there's no cause five minutes ago for thinking about it. And you can recognize, Hey, what's, what is this? And then maybe realize that, Oh, it's, you know, an, an experience 10 minutes from now, you know, has to do with that thing you were thinking uh anyway building up you know these these uh experiences you start to erode those doubts that creep in uh uh and it's very helpful but but it's it's a it's an incredibly powerful and empowering feeling to there's there's no substitute for personal experience right Right. And so just to realize that your mind is transcending the present moment and that even if you sort of consciously feel like you're um, here sitting in your body right now, you know, at your desk or whatever you're doing it right at that moment, that your mind is transcending that profoundly and possibly even that, you know, that it's it's extending across your whole life. Yeah, you know uh, that's that's the argument I'm trying to make because there are there are experiences, recorded experiences, um, that do suggest that that our behavior, our thoughts, right now in the present moment, could be shaped by events that will happen decades from now, and 
uh, and I myself have had those experiences. I don't really talk about them in the book. I really, in the book, I really didn't want to talk about my own experiences very much. I did in the last, in the, in the, in the, in the postscript, but yeah, but, you, you unloaded in the postscript, which I enjoyed. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I unload a lot more on my blog. Uh, if people want to read the nightshirt. Yeah. Nightshirt. I'm sorry. I forgot to mention that at the beginning of the show. Yeah. Um, I, I do talk about my precognitive dreams sometimes there, but it's a, it's very, it's a very powerful, powerful thing, uh, to, you know, to realize that we're all precogs. I mean, there's no, you know, th- that's another thing I'm trying to sort of disabuse readers of, you know, when I say you know, Freud was a precog, well, it's, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, he was, he was someone who, you know, because he recorded well, he, his, he wrote he, about it. So that's why we, that's why you point yeah, him out. Well, he wrote about it without knowing what he was writing right, about. Right. That, that's the interesting thing. But the people, you know, he was, you know, one, one great thing about the psychoanalytic tradition is it gets people to, uh, to write obsessively, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, that TMI thing. I don't know, you know, people, if you've never read psychoanalytic case studies or, or whatever, yeah, they're embarrassing. It, it, Yeah, they're embarrassing. It's like, oh my God, TMI, why is he talking about this? He's like, oh, there's this kind of icky icky thing that you have to get past. Yeah, be clinical about it. Yeah, once you develop kind of a taste for that, or not a taste, but an ability to to not be put off by that TMI thing of psychoanalysis, it's like that mindset of like this kind of obsessive self-scrutiny and of scrutiny of details – Kind of forensic, it's kind of a forensic mindset, a mm-hmm. scrutiny yeah. of details of our lives and so forth, and our biographies. Well, that's very helpful, and it's um, uh, and that's where you're going to start detecting this stuff. So you know, like Freud. Okay, I'm calling in the book. I call him a precog, but in a way, he was just you know we're all that same way. We just we're not unlike Freud. We're not in the habit of recording our dreams, record writing obsessively about ourselves, our feelings, you know, and yeah. and our lives. And we don't have a million biographers also adding to the literature on our lives, you know. So you know, part of what makes Freud a precog is the fact that other people were writing about him, and we have such a record. And the same is true of of Phil Dick, uh, which is one of the examples late in my book, uh, who was, of course, a science fiction writer who was yep. notoriously uh, precognitive. And, you know, part of it... There's a lot simply, of foreshadowing in the in the part that I read about Dick coming up, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, but one of the reasons, again, is that there's just so much written about him. I mm-hmm. mean, not only did he write, you know, a lot, I mean, he was very prolific. Yeah, we got a data uh, set. We have a date exactly. We have a data set, uh, and uh, and he wrote, a, and he was very forthright in writing about his dreams to like his his pen pals and stuff. Right. Uh, so we have this wonderful record of his dream life and of his creative his creative output, and then we have all these bi- biographers, and then incre- you know every year there's some new biography by some you know ex girlfriend or or ex wife or whatever. So we've got. You know, he's, you know, multiple ex-wives and ex-girlfriends and biographers writing about, you know, their view of, of Phil Dick. So we know a lot about his life. So we can correlate his dreams and his his writings to events in his life. And this helps, you know, helps very much make a case for precognition in these in the, in the lives of these individuals. But we're all I'm I'm I'm, I'm really trying to insist that we're all this way uh, and, you know, just and if you want to see it, it just requires paying attention to these kinds of things. 
Yeah, just like any, anything. Um, that, that my, my argument recently with a lot of people is if you want to get people to understand the UFO thing, they should probably have to just experience it themselves. You, yeah. can, you can read a thousand books, but it's never going to replace an, an experience. Which brings up something else that you um, pushed. An idea you pushed in the book, which excites me. You, you said that with respect to precognition, um, like you just said, we're all that way. It's going on all the time. And it's it's going on kind of on a micro level, mean, meaning you know maybe you um, you know turn your wheel the the, the right way yeah. right before an accident happens, but it's also going on in a macro way as you described, you know decades decades in the future or you know mm-hmm. weeks weeks you know years whatever it is. Um, yeah. Maybe you can elaborate. How is it going on in our lives all the time? And then you also have the um, idea of rewards and punishments or whatever you want to call it that reinforce uh, retrocausality. Yeah. Well. Uh I argue. Sorry, that, I asked a lot of things there. Yeah, so I'll, I'll just. Sorry. This is a reward. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a that's an important one. I think you know the, it it makes sense that we're oriented towards. Uh, well, most basically, you know, and this makes evolutionary perfect evolutionary sense. Mm-hmm. We're going to be oriented towards survival. So something like this, something like precognition, would have you know, evolved, uh, as a survival tool, like anything else, like any other trait. Um, and you know, basically I'm arguing or I'm suggesting, you know, this is not the focus of my book, but I do suggest that, that what we call precognition is just, you know, sort of the manifestation in human life of, of probably the basic principle underlying life in general, that, that there's this, uh, quantum retrocausal, uh, thing. That's probably what, you know, it's probably what, uh, what people have always kind of sought for, uh, as an explanation for the arising of life. Um, and you know, the, the new field of quantum biology is, I think, gonna revolutionize things certainly uh, because oh, yeah. we're, yeah, that's just discussed that, extensively in your book too. Yeah. It's just in the last, you know, a little over a decade that, we now know that quantum effects do operate in warm, wet biological systems. I mean, for decades, it was thought, no, 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 there's no way that quantum uh, effects can scale, can operate, you know, in living systems because they're too warm and wet. Well, no, yeah, there's too much uh, uh, yeah. randomness as because uh, they'll, they'll cool down a quantum computer to, you know, to right yes. above you know, absolute zero just to keep the, the entanglement right. from getting too complicated. Exactly. Well, no, I mean, we now know that, uh, you know, the first discovery was that this is how photosynthesis works. You know, well, that's a pretty big that's a pretty basic life function isn't it i mean that's the that was you know one of the first you know really oh yeah uh, the, the quantum tunneling uh, uh idea yeah. right so uh so you know we know that now know that 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 photosynthesis itself depends upon this phenomenon called quantum tunneling which is where you know a, an electron you know a photon hits a chlorophyll molecule and an electron is liberated from a from a I think it's a magnesium atom in the chlorophyll molecule. I'm not sure. And anyway, it has to it has to find its way to the reaction center of the plant cell. Well, it somehow you know it does this. It finds its way without traveling randomly in all directions. It goes directly to the to the reaction center of the plant cell. Well, the only way it can do this is by quantum tunneling. Um, uh, but we now know that that quantum phenomena are underlie 
uh, bird navigation. Uh, it underlies the action of enzymes. Uh, I read an interesting paper last week that uh, is, is suggesting that DNA, the bonds in DNA are actually quantum uh, in nature. It's like you can just, I, you know, my, my money, you know, I don't have a lot of money, but I would, I would bet a lot of money that, that within 20 years, we're going to realize that, that pretty much all of the systems that we think of as, as really basic for life, uh, are, are quantum, you know, in, in nature and that quantum, that it's quant these quantum effects, uh, which I'm arguing, uh, and more and more people are arguing are really retro causal effects, are going to underlie that. So basically, life is a way of scaling up this quantum retrocausation. And then on top of, you know, the sort of basic life processes in cells, you've got nervous systems, which are an even more uh, sophisticated sort of elaboration of this quantum retrocausal logic. Uh, so that you have like nervous systems, which are essentially quantum computers, uh, and so on. And, and <clears throat> so, uh, what was your question? <laughs> I, 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 got uh, I think the question was, um, if this is operant in everybody's lives, how, uh, you know, what's the, what is your, uh, what is the mechanism whereby retrocausality is used by the human nervous system and your brain and all that to, yeah. um, predict what's going on and going to happen in your future in the, yeah. you know, or, or react to what's going yeah. to happen in your future in you know, in the next second, or maybe if you're, you're lucky longer than that. Right. Well, here's the most speculative part of the book, uh, which is that, I mean, there's no doubt, you know, there's nothing speculative about the existence of precognition as far as I'm concerned right. or the basic way it operates on, uh, on sort of rewards ahead and so forth mm -hmm. where it's speculative is still in the nuts and bolts of the mechanisms. Cause we still don't know enough about the brain. Honestly, you know, although neuroscience has made, you know, huge strides and I am, I am like not one of those, um, you know, a lot of people nowadays are so anti neuroscience, you know, it's like, it's all, you know, they, they want to talk about consciousness and how it's not, you know, the brain is just a reducing valve. All this. Stuff. I, 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 well, first of all, I don't get into questions of consciousness in the book and I don't, I don't think that's a productive, uh, debate even at this point. Uh, but I am like not one of those anti neuroscience people. I mean, neuro, you know, it's like when you study neuroscience, you know, the brain is phenomenally, I mean, it's just the most unbelievably sublimely complex and fascinating thing in the universe. And the thing is, at this point, we can only scratch the surface of that complexity because our existing imaging tools and so forth can only give us a very, you know, low resolution picture of what's happening in the brain. And I think the action is good. The real action is going to turn out to be happening uh, on a very micro scale. But, but here's, you know, my very speculative uh, suggestion for what may be going on uh, is that, uh, is that synaptic, plasticity that is the brain's plasticity the, the ability of the brain to change and essentially learn uh that's you know to form new synaptic connections or to lose old synaptic connections that aren't necessary and so forth that that process in the brain is partly governed by uh the behavior of these these molecules these polymers called microtubules and some of your listeners are probably familiar with microtubules because they they figure prominently in uh, a lot of arguments about quantum consciousness and so forth uh well uh, I think, you know, there, there's, you know, a lot of growing reason to believe that quantum computation uh, may occur in, in microtubules. And if 
quantum computation is a retrocausal thing, then, well, the, this, these structures that control uh, synaptic plasticity, uh, that is to say learning in your brain, may be, may be controlled by these computers that can get information from their own future. So that would mean that the structure of learning in our brain or, or the processes whereby our neurons form new connections to other neurons is governed to an extent by events in those neurons' future, not just events in those neurons' past. And that would be the basis then for how the brain can get access to events in its future. And again, you scale this up into circuits and whole systems of neurons that are being conditioned by their own future processing. Mm-hmm. Well, then, then it opens the door not only to these you know, short timescale uh, presentiment effects that are shown, for instance, in the work of, of Dean Radin, whom you mentioned, and Daryl Bem is another researcher. Uh, but you yeah, I was going to ask about him. Right, but then you could potentially uh, have the, the kinds of uh, effects that, um, you know, you have transmission of information across days and weeks and years of a person's life. Um, so that's, that's my, that's my, you know, sp- you know, it's speculative, but it's based on uh, a lot of growing research in, in, uh, uh, various fields, quantum computing and quantum biology and neuroscience. So I, mean, I think it's, it's, you know, it's informed speculation, uh, but yeah, that's, well, my, that's my guess for how it's going to work. Yeah. Well, that's a lot of what my show is about is let's, um, take some ideas and throw them around without having to be, um, locked into those ideas just to see what happens. Right. Sure. Uh, I'm willing to be proved, proved wrong. I mean, I'm certainly open to, to new ideas, but I don't have the wherewithal yet to prove you wrong. Let me, let me, let me, <laughs> let me finish the book and we'll argue about it later. <laughs> I probably won't. Uh, here's a really dumbass question. Um, if we are able, you know, if, if this is a thing that is, has been uh, given to us by, you know, evolution, um, being able to be, in so many words, precognitive, why do bad things happen anyway? I mean, why, why, why do once in a while you get eaten by the lion or run into the car or whatever if the, if the system is uh, operating? Is that because it's just imperfect? Yeah. I mean, everything's imperfect. I mean, it's like, you know, even, okay, let's set aside any of this psychic stuff. I mean, yeah. you know, the fact, the fact that we have legs, you know, to run away from predators, <laughs> well, we're still going to get eaten sometimes. I mean, it's like, it's like, you know, we're not, we're talking about a tendency, you know, it's like if, if, Okay, look at it this way. If a, okay, if 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 in the primordial soup, back in the primordial soup, um, you know, you've got a bacterium that is able to to get a you know one microsecond preview <laughs> of its future. Okay, you know, like one thousandth of a second preview of its future. Well, that bacterium is gonna be you know just one iota more likely to kind of pass on its genes you know well that's what we're talking you know we we may be talking about a very small influence i think it's a bigger influence than that but i mean yeah, I, yeah. you know you're talking you know you're talking about tendencies here and and the the real argument has always been you know how can you have life at all in an entropic universe because the the in in a in a thermodynamic universe where Everything is losing order uh, through entropy. You know, it just doesn't make sense that self-organizing structures 
like living systems like cells and multicellular organisms over it should emerge. It just, it doesn't make sense. And so you've got, uh, for the last 200 years, you've had scientists sort of, okay, so saying, well, we've got to, we need to add something to this thermodynamic picture. Yeah, because like, life is so, anti-entropic, yeah. Right, so you had, so back in the 19th century, you had a life force, you know? You had, oh, yes. Um, you know, vitalism was a thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, like, so the vitalists, but they were always sort of seen as anti-scientific and they were always marginal. Um, and you, but so on the peripheries of sort of the main, the hard mainstream sciences, you always had figures, brilliant figures, you know, like Henri Bergson, you know, uh, you know, brilliant philosopher of the, you know, around the turn of the century, arguing yeah. That no, there, you know, it's not enough to talk about a, you know, a completely entropic thermodynamic universe. You've got to have some other principle going on. Um, in the middle of the of the 20th century, an Italian uh, uh, physicist, I believe, or maybe he was a mathematician, I'm sure, but he was uh, Luigi Fantapier, I believe is his name, yes. uh, argued for a, a principle of syntropy, which would be an opposite to entropy. Um, and that's been revived recently by a couple of Italian psychologists. But um, I, and you know, of course, and then you have, you know, Rupert Sheldrake arguing for formative causation. You know, but the point is you have, uh, you have the sort of mainstream saying, no, it's, it's all uh, thermodynamic, but it never mm -hmm. can quite explain uh, these things. And they struggle to explain how, how life could emerge. And, and they'd go through more and more gymnastics trying to sort of explain it where uh and then you have on the other hand uh sort of people on the peripheries you know arguing for some sort of life force or syntropy or morphic resonance or something right. like um well you know quantum uh quantum effects retro causation i feel sure is going to supply the answer um you know we're right at the beginnings of quantum biology even though you know, Erwin Schrodinger back in the 1950s, I believe, was already suggesting, you know, that's going to be the answer to life uh, is quantum uh, phenomena. And uh, now it's, it's looking like he was right. But, you know, only as of, I think, 2007, do we actually have concrete evidence of that fact? Uh, and it's but it's, you know, the field is exploding right now. Uh, quantum biology is, is exploding right now. So I think, you know, just even in the next few years, we're going to see more and more discoveries. Uh, sub finally substantiating uh, this I this idea that's sort of been latent for decades. There is a a very um, different idea and uh, attitude towards uh, scientific research. I think that's coming out, and it's uh, it's changing before our eyes. I've I've uh, never seen so much literature that seems to not really upend the old. Uh, the, the old order, but severely edit it. <laughs> that's, that's just it. You know, that's just it. And that, one, of, one of the things that has frustrated me about a lot of people working in the sort of paranormal realms, whether it be UFOs or parapsychology. Oh, they ignore been, this. There's been this attitude that, oh, materialism is dead. We need to, you know, so we need, you know, it's all about consciousness. You know, materialism is dead. You know, materialism is, is, is totally defunct. Well, that's not at all true. I mean, it's like that, that's, that's, they, that's, uh, that's kind of preposterous, actually. But, but, you know, 
material, you know, science and mainstream materialist paradigms are due for an overhaul. And, uh, and a lot of anomalies are, you know, anomalies are building up and that's when paradigm shifts occur. And so, you know, quantum biology is one of those paradigm shifts. And I think we're due for a number of other sort of related parallel paradigm shifts in a number of fields, you know, and, and these are not, you know, materialism is not going anywhere, but materialism is going to turn out to be way, way, way more interesting, uh, as a, as a, as a paradigm and as a framework than it has seemed for the last, you know, half century, you know, yeah, it seemed kind of dead for, for a while now. And a lot of, you know, there's, there's been this slowdown of discoveries, you know, it's like things are not getting discovered at the same rate. Well, that's because, uh, some, you know, things, some old taboos need to be, no, need to be thrown out, but in an intelligent, informed way. And I think that's what, uh, uh, that's, you know, that's certainly, I think going to happen around things like retro causation, you know, we're, you know, physics, you know, experiments are showing it. Quant, I think quantum, this whole field of quantum computing is going to show, uh, you know, really going to force us to re redefine our notions of what causality means and how causality works. Uh, and a lot of new ideas are going to come out of it. And I, you know, my hope is that, you know, certain, you know, quote unquote, paranormal phenomena will, you know, in 50 years no longer be seen as paranormal. I'm not, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not going to hold my breath, but, but yeah. that's certainly... Well, it seems like it's going that way. And the way you describe it kind of kindled the idea in my mind that maybe materialism is an epiphenomenon of all this quantum stuff you're talking about and all the retro causality you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right. The material world. Not I not think, to degrade it, but just, you know, that's the, a lower, no. a, a more basic level of uh, of order might be below materialism. Well, I, I sort of materialism is another one of those words. It's kind of hard to define. I, you know, I'm, I'm a material, I see myself as kind of a materialist, but not a, not a bad guy materialist. <laughs> I, 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 Open-minded materialism. Know, I, well, I mean, to me, you know, for instance, like information theories and, you know, sort of the kind of most advanced quantum physical uh, thinking to me, it, it's all materialism. And this is, you know, to say that, that, that the universe is made of information. Well, that's an, in, that's a materialist, theory you know information is material it's based on differences it's based on measurable differences of things mm -hmm. and uh, there's nothing immaterial about that so that's why i'm saying materialism is not dead materialism right. just needs to be you know broadened and redefined and 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 uh and needs to open up a little bit you know at this point it's it's so interesting not only uh in physics but in biology too you're getting these uh these uh, professors emeritus <laughs> who are, you know, no longer have anything to worry about. They're the <laughs> ones who are like, who are like writing books, you know, sort of openly suggesting this stuff and the suggestion. Oh, yeah. Wheeler did this at the end of his life. Who did? Wheeler was talking about this at the yeah, end of his yeah, life. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, Wheeler, Wheeler was not, he didn't wait to be an emeritus. I mean, he was huge enough that he didn't need to worry about it. That's true. Uh, he was enough of a sort of a God. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he yeah he's a he was he was amazing but but he, you know in biology too there it's a, it's amazing there are some figures who are very you know these are serious these are not people you think of as fringe but you know but it's only once they retire that they start talking about this stuff 
Well, I mean, I'm, I hope I'm, I'm hoping and I, I do believe that that younger, younger uh, scientists are going to feel freer because of the example of these older, you know, retired, uh, eminent people in their field. They're going to feel freer to start talking about these things more openly. I think I, I do think that ice is going to thaw uh, about, you know, things like you know, retro causation and teleological causation uh, you know, at least in some fields, um, I don't have a lot of hope for psychology per se, but I do have hope for, uh, the so-called harder sciences like physics and biology. Yeah. You talk about teleology. I think there, um, you, you mentioned this, I was working that night, uh, that you, uh, a couple weeks ago when you were on with George Knapp. Um, oh, okay. I mean, I was working for coast, so I was listening to the show. The thing that you brought, I think you brought this up during the show. And this is uh, something that I've been thinking about for a while. I think I wrote an essay on it a while back, a very short one, because I didn't want people to think I was getting religious on them. Um, <laughs> but the idea was that uh, the anti-entropic thing that we were talking about earlier, and indeed the whole uh, history of uh, the universe from you know the beginnings, whatever that was, up to now and any time in the future, looks like a teleology, but maybe that's just what, that's just what matter does. Right. Well, that's ex that's exactly yes. I I totally I totally agree with that. I think that's that's what matters does, and that's why and and that's why the term teleology is tricky because 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 to some people, and I think certainly back in the days of the Enlightenment and, and Newton and so forth, you know, teleology implied this kind of purpose of so sort of God's purpose, and that's not anymore what 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 that's certainly not what someone like Wheeler would argue. Uh, Wheeler is arguing for a kind of retro causation, which yeah. is that simply that you can't, that the idea of starting with the big bang and then like the history of the universe being simply this, this causal unfolding from, uh, from that point forward is not enough that, that in fact, at a certain point, comes, you know, for him, it was the observer, the role of the observer, uh, to shape a quantum system by observing it. And for him, well, at a certain point you have the rise, you have, you know, living systems and people with telescopes to look, you know, to observe, you know, distant, you know, stars and quasars and so forth that the be at, or in the early universe. So they're in a sense shaping what's happening in that early universe. So they're exerting a causal influence backward. Now, Mm -hmm. His now where his where his limitation was that he was he was still beholden to the uh, the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, which is that you know that that there are these wave functions, and you know an unobserved particle is a wave function, and then it collapses and becomes something real only when it's observed and or measured. Now that. <clears throat> that notion is kind of softening uh, these days, and in fact, uh, oh yeah, you talk the, about some, that in the book too. Yeah, some of the some of the people who argue for retro causality are pointing out that that whole you know wave function that collapses, uh, while it, it sort of is exciting to kind of lay people who are like looking at quantum physics, go wow, that's pretty cool. It's actually been kind of uh, masking this even more awesome possibility, which is that 
maybe wave function is just describing our own ignorance <laughs> of, of of what's happening with a system uh, in light of the fact that our own measurement is going to influence the system in its past. Okay, mm. and that's that's the really exciting idea uh, underlying certain retro causal interpretations of quantum mechanics, and that's where you know my, again where my, my you know I'm you know I'm I'm this outsider placing bets on the horse race of quantum physics like who's <laughs> going to win who's going to win these races like which which but I think uh, that 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 people who are uh, who are sort of uh, arguing that the wave function is just a fiction, that it's a mathematical fiction. It's a predictive tool, but it's a predictive tool that we need because we're, it's not the future yet. We can't tell what our, how our measurement is going to influence a particle in its past. That's what the wave function is just simply kind of covering over. It's kind of papering over uh, this retrocausal influence. Um, Hand well, waving, as you called it. It's hand waving, and that's what that's what really redefines physics, and that's what makes Wheeler's uh, kind of retrocausal view. I mean, his his view of the observer kind of just shaping, you know, whether a, a photon is measured as a particle versus a wave. You know, that's a very weak, not even really. He called it. He actually called it teleology without teleology because it was just <laughs> short. It was just short of retrocausation, but retrocausation. Uh, as argued by uh, a growing number of physicists, is much more uh, robust. It's, you know, the, the measurement is is not just a question of our choice of whether to measure it as a particle or as a wave. I mean, it's like, it's it's the causation goes in reverse as well as forwards. And so you can't talk about the history of the universe simply as this progression from big bang to whatever happens at the end it's uh whatever happens at the end is an equal participant in this thing uh, that we call the universe and so, so the history of the universe is um in this in this case is symmetrical yes it's symmetrical uh or maybe not completely symmetrical i mean it, it's an i guess an open question whether there's as much influence going in backwards as forwards okay you know the fact that we preferentially see only one direction, maybe that indicates that that's kind of there's kind of a an, an asymmetry there. I don't know, but the point is that there's a kind of past and future interact in a way to create reality, uh, not that it's like simply you know from A to B to C to D. Uh, so you know the the potential for observers at the end of time to influence reality goes way beyond just looking through telescopes at photons emitted billions of years ago. Uh, there's potentially all kinds of ways retrocausation can shape uh, the universe, the evolving universe. And yeah, the possibilities are really mind-bogglingly profound and, and, and cool. <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, so, so really, you know, Wheeler was a, a pioneer in this kind of thinking, but but we can go way farther now, I think, than Wheeler did uh, by the time he died. Can we back up a little bit? And I was kind of fascinated. I'd heard about Daryl Bem, the uh, um, yeah, was he a parapsychologist or a psychologist? He's a psychologist. Yeah, that's that's the thing. You know, he's a, he he was a because he, he ca is, caused a big stink with his uh, uh, his priming experiments. So maybe you could describe that how it how it enters into your argument in your book. Yes. Well, Daryl Bem uh, was is. I mean, I guess now he's he's retired, but he's he very eminent 
Cornell University psychologist. He had he had a very distinguished career studying a lot of different psychological phenomena. A very you know very well respected guy. Uh, but you know he also happened you know I think the story his backstory is that he happened also to be a magician, ah. and that was and that was handy because uh, because you know one of his colleagues. Um, I believe this was Charles Honerton in the early nineties when he was doing research in what, uh, uh, was called the Gonsfeld paradigm in, oh, yeah. uh, in psychic ESP research. And he wanted, uh, he needed, it's very, ha- it's very helpful for parapsychologists to have someone who's trained in magic to observe their <laughs> experiments to make sure that there isn't Hank, you know, ha- isn't trickery going on right. and that there's, there, make sure there's no way for someone to, to deceive them. And so, he, so Daryl Bem was, so he was game. He was at that point a skeptic. He didn't believe in ESP, but he was certainly willing to lend his, his, uh, skills to helping this other researcher with his work. Well, he, uh, Daryl Bendis, we realized in the course of doing this that, well, there actually seems to be something to this ESP stuff. I mean, he uh, he was impressed by what he was seeing. Uh, and so he offered, you know, to his you know colleague that, you know, look, if you can find get some you know, results here, I'll help you publish them. And so he did. And that's what got him in, interested in the subject of of parapsychology. And uh, and so in the basically in the first decade of this century he conducted a number a series of i believe nine um big large experiments uh involving i think about 100 students each uh where he took five you know like basic paradigms in psychology um and reversed the causal order in them. I mean, they're just genius experiments. Uh, one of them, uh, the one you mentioned, is priming. Uh, you know, in a standard priming experiment, uh, you would uh, ha- put a student in, put students in front of computer screens, uh, and ask them to make some sort of response. And unknown to the student, just before the response, you flash, or before they're supposed to make a response, you flash something on the screen, which somehow influ- should is designed to somehow influence their choice, and thereby you show the influence of an unconscious processing on their choice. Well, uh, Daryl Bem, instead of putting the prime before their choice, he flashed it after they made their choice. Mm-hmm. Okay, and he still got he got a significant result he you know the the primes shown after the choice influence their choice i mean that's like causally like mind-blowing yeah that's that's wrong smoke (laughs) smoke goes out your ears when you first read this stuff um uh in in another series of experiments um he uh called uh retroactive facilitation of recall he uh well in facilitation of recall experiments you 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 show people a word list and then you give them a uh, like a uh, uh, a reinforcer training on certain of those words that they learned, and then you test them, and they do better on those words that they had gotten that second practice of. Okay, it's very common sense. But in his 
case, he showed them the word list, then he tested them, and then afterwards he showed like certain of the words again. Well, again, it showed the results showed that the words that the that the students saw after the test influenced their performance on the test. I mean, it's just you know, it's it's wonderful, and it like just like what? How the hell can this be? But you know, he again and again he showed these kinds of of results. Yeah, and it's been replicated very, too. I think. And it's been widely replicated. That's the thing. It like so he published this paper in 2011, um, and it was called "Feeling the Future." And you can get this online. Uh, and he and he deliberately made these experiments very simple and very. And he made his his statistical analysis was very basic and simple, so that to facilitate replication in other laboratories. And uh, well, the you know, and it was published in one of the top ranked journals in the field. And the editors even published a, a sort of a, not a disclaimer, but an editorial along with it saying, you know, look, we have, we admit that we, we're, we're, this we're, doesn't we're, make any sense, but it doesn't make any sense. And this goes against all of our beliefs, but as scientists, we think it's important that we, uh, publish this. Uh, and so, uh, you know, they did and it, aroused, a firestorm, firestorm and, uh, and it was, uh, and there were a lot of initial claims and you'll find this, if you Google this, you know, Daryl Bem, you'll find these claims that his, his findings couldn't replicate. Uh, these came out like shortly after, uh, you know, people were just so angry at, at, at his, at the fact that, that he'd gotten this research published at all. Uh, and they would, you know, they published these, you know, articles that, you know, arguing that he couldn't get it, couldn't replicate his findings. In fact, uh, subsequently, a, no, a lot of research teams were able to replicate his findings. And but the funny thing is, the, the huge irony in this case is that that case uh, caused so much soul searching in the field of psychology that there was a feeling that well, if this if he got positive results in this you know, preposterous research, there must be something wrong with the field and with our research methods. And so, uh, and so a big research team uh, launched this project to try and replicate like all the top findings in like the three top psychological science journals in, and in the course of a year or something like that. And they, and they were only able to replicate like 36% of the findings in, in, in these top journals. And so it was this huge embarrassing thing for the field. I mean, in fact, this is going on all across the sciences. The replication crisis is, is, is a, is a, a problem uh, throughout the health sciences. It's, it's, it's a, it's a general problem. But the, 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 the irony here is that, that Daryl Bem's findings have in fact very wide and replicated. Yeah. Yeah. So, so these are very robust uh, findings. And, and of course, and again, you mentioned Dean Radin a few times and he was really the pioneer of this kind of research. He was doing more psychophysical type stuff. So he was measuring people's like galvanic skin response, uh, in response to, you know, subsequent stimuli, you know, so he would get these spikes in, in, in galvanic skin response, you know, just like, like 200 milliseconds or whatever before a stimulus. So he was showing these things back in the nineties. And so I think Daryl Bem was partly inspired by that body of research, but then a lot of people have done research like, like Dean Radin as well, as well, finding presentiment, uh, findings, uh, uh, um, Julian Mossbridge, uh, is another, uh, really, really good researcher in that mm-hmm. field. Yeah, uh, so, 
yeah. So uh, anyway, so yeah, a lot of this is this is a a real thing, <laughs> and lots of good research is is being published on this. Of course, most of it's being published. You know, it can't get published in in mainstream journals, so it's you know you're only going to find it in the parapsychology journals. But it's it's good research, and uh, and it only you know one of my arguments in the book is that. Uh, we can't just look at the scientific laboratory research. So that's only going to tell us so much. But the 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 fact that the in the laboratory they're showing it, and and it, it corresponds so well to the kinds of things that people report anecdotally. You know, that's the the bad word that you know scientists yeah. think anecdotal. Mm-hmm. But you know, honestly, we got to start paying attention to anecdotal evidence to a degree because you know that's. The only these 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 phenomena center on meaning. They center on on meaningful experiences. Yeah, they and, don't center on somebody sitting in a lab all the time. Exactly, and so like you can't replicate them. You can't predict and replicate them, and so you've got you've got to be able to listen to anecdotal data. Yeah, and anecdotally, you know, it's repro- it's it's repro- it's uh, reproduced everywhere. Yeah, exactly, and it's um and this is this is one reason why um around these kinds of phenomena, uh, the sciences have to learn to talk to the humanities because it's in the humanities that, that methods have been developed to study meaning. You know, yeah. that's what humanities study is meaning. Right. Uh, and so you've got to have this crosstalk between the sciences and the humanities around uh, psychic phenomena. For instance, and uh, and so that's the case I'm making in the book, and that's why you know you know look like the first half of the book is all about is all about science, but the second half of the book is all about the humanities. It's all about you know psychoanalysis and and literary uh, criticism, and you know sort of trying to bring these these ways of these different epistemologies together right. Uh, right. to to study this this phenomenon that's very rich and it sort of straddles. The, the sort of the objective and the subjective to me when i read that it's like uh it's like joining the left and right brain together your your yeah. your book is a hippocampus <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there you go yeah or a corpus I think corpus colossum that's it awesome. i'm sorry that's right corpus colossum there you go yeah because yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah definitely more of that yeah. needs to go on i've been i wrote essays a few years ago about um how uh ufos are can be looked at as a as a cosmic art project and yeah, 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 definitely. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, you, we talked about that in your piece in the in the framing the debate uh, collection a little bit. Yeah, no, that's a real that's a that's a genius. Uh, I think a genius insight. Because people in the thank you, the people in the I think in the that study this, they're they're very interested in and in having science prove that they're right. And that's not yeah. even to me. That's not even half the picture anymore. And they're ignoring the humanities, which is a, re- a big mistake when you're looking at something like this. And um, until reading your book, I didn't. It wasn't so much in focus as to how physics uh, w- and and the hard scientists sciences would benefit mm-hmm. from uh, uh, interfacing with uh, you know the humanities or the soft sciences. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is an area where uh, I mentioned uh, Jeffrey Kripal at Rice University, where he has like really been the kind of the leader in, I think, bringing uh, bringing the sciences and the humanities into dialogue. Mm-hmm. And you know, a, as a, a major 
you know, as a as a tenured professor in in the humanities, you know, religious studies, he's sort of in this really good position to uh, sort of kind of coalesce. Uh, you know, not only voices in the humanities that are kind of willing to talk about this stuff and then kind of build bridges to the sciences uh, and get kind of people coming into dialogue about that. So I think, you know, his, uh, your listeners, if you're not, if they're not aware of his work, they really should be. He's, he's, he's the, he's the big pioneer yeah. who's going to, I think, make a difference in, in having all these topics, you know, UFOs, parapsychology, so forth, uh, really be taken seriously. Yeah, I think most of the listeners, if not all of them, are, are well aware of uh, Jeff Kripal. And at some point, I'm going to have him on the show when I've uh, built up enough uh, <laughs> bravery Something. to have him on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the very basis of your book is, you know, let's let's look at these let's look at these issues and let's look at them in light of things that don't fit. You know, pieces of the anomalous information. And the way you describe uh, retrocausality, it actually pulls together a lot of this anomalous information into a way that makes logical and, dare I say, repeatable sense. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I find very exciting about uh, the retro, you know, retrocausation and precognition are sort of the same thing, sort of viewed in two different ways. But yeah, one of that the, was one of my questions, actually. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of one things I find exciting about it is that. <coughs> the retrocausal interpretation of quantum mechanics actually is incredibly elegant. And once you, once you wrap your head around the idea of causation happening in reverse, which I admit that's a, okay, that's a hurdle. But once you get past that, it kind of takes away a lot of the, uh, a lot of what was intimidatingly bizarre and senseless about quantum physics uh it's it's actually a very elegant kind of solution uh to quantum mysteries and that would actually make quantum physics a lot more accessible to to ordinary people frankly um because once you once you wrap once you can wrap your head around that one idea that you know measure you know interacting with a particle is not only influencing it in a forward direction, but influencing it in a backward direction. And that that's what, that's what the idea, that sort of randomness, that quantum randomness has been masking all these years. Uh, once you wrap your head around that, it's like, Oh, it's like if things fall into place in a really cool way. And that's, uh, that is another thing I'm trying to get people to kind of savor, uh, uh, with, you know, with my book and, and my blog and stuff. I just, you know, it's, it's a very exciting kind of cool idea that actually kind of brings, I think I sort of see it as kind of bringing quantum physics down from its kind of lofty heights a little bit because it actually makes it a little bit more understandable, frankly. Uh, a lot of the, a lot of the you know, quantum behavior that's just regarded as so strange that no human being can can comprehend it. I don't. I don't really think that's true. I, I, I'm I'm skeptical of that, and um, uh, so I, that's one of the reasons why I'm kind of excited about this paradigm. Well, actually, um, maybe you could comment. That here's one of the other questions I had. Um, what are you doing to that poor cat? <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to need to let them out of the room. Hold on. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I'm sorry. Your listeners were not expecting a cat fight. 
<laughs> early in my study, I didn't realize I had two cats confined in here. Um, okay. <laughs> no, that's great. I've, I like the yeah. randomness. You uh, like the drama? Yeah, I like yeah. a little randomness there. <clears throat> yeah. How would you explain the concept of using entanglement as a sort of way to see the future? And how could we use this, in, this information if it's already determined what the outcome would be? In other words, how does it prevent paradox? <laughs> well, that's well. Uh, that's what half the book is about. So it's like hard to answer that in like a uh, you know a few sentences. But um, well, there's two questions there: the, the entanglement question and the let, let's right, start, let's right. deal with let's deal with the second one. Yeah, because that, it sort of answers if you don't understand what yeah. you're talking about with with um, yeah. fully about uh, qu- uh, uh, quantum uh, physics and uh, retrocausality. That you know, it's kind of like okay for a for a Dumbo. What it, what is you know how does how does retrocausality um, explain or make more more accessible the ideas of quantum physics? Well, okay, I can answer that one briefly. That that uh, the idea entanglement um, is this notion that well, you have two particles that are entangled, and you can send one of the particles all the way across the universe, and any measurement that you perform on that particle will instantaneously uh, uh, like dictate how the other particle. Uh, behaves is yeah. measured yeah. behaves okay well so that implies what has always been called non-locality the idea that well space must be an illusion because there's no way that that information can be sent from particle a to particle b faster than light right according to einstein's theory of relativity mm-hmm. and but and and non-locality has sort of been the, the the basic way that it's always been described but and it and of course you know, people have seized upon non-locality as an explanation for things like like telepathy and remote viewing and so forth. But the alternative explanation is the retrocausal one, that that the measurement that you perform on particle A, you know, all the way across the universe, uh, actually sent sends information back in time to when the two particles were entangled together on Earth, and. And so it's sending part information back in time and then becomes part of the backstory of particle B uh, as it travels in another direction across the universe. So that measurement that you performed over here uh, is is influencing or has retrocausally influenced the other particle, uh, its twin, its entangled twin across the universe. So there's no transmission of information across space so there's no and and non it's not non-local it's you know the universe in a, in a, in a retrocausal model the universe is local you know in a way that yeah. would totally totally make einstein perfectly happy yeah everything's uh, local everything's local but there's quantum entangled quantum entanglement is this kind of uh it embodies a kind of eternity um mm, yeah. it's a timeless it's a timeless relationship and uh and this is what makes the uh, things like any kind of quantum what, what they call system. instantaneous it's not it doesn't have anything to do yeah, with that yeah yeah right and well, this is what makes quantum entangled systems so cool and and a quantum computer is the quintessential quantum entangled system basically any any time you have multiple particles in a state held kept in a state of entanglement uh, and protected from uh, the kind of disentangling or what's called decoherence uh, that is fluctuations in the environment that 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 spoil that entanglement. Anytime that you have particles in a state like that, 
that's essentially a quantum computer. And uh, that's what makes quantum computers this kind of new technology on the horizon so cool because what they may be doing is not uh, just accelerating ordinary computations like you'd perform in a, in a regular computer. What they may be doing is sort of a computing across time. Uh, and if that's the case, that opens up all kinds of possibilities for uh, what I call precognitive circuits and technologies that could capitalize on this kind of communication across time. Now, so not, but, but not perfectly, to, maybe obliquely. Oh, exactly, not perfectly. It's never going to be perfect, but it, it may be good enough. Uh, that you can get some kind of benefit from that. Now, this leads to your the, the second question you asked. Yeah, um, paradox question. How does it prevent paradox when it's already yeah, determined? Right, right. Well, it prevents paradox because it's because of that imperfection. And, ah, yeah. And, and for instance, you know, human beings, let's take the example of a precognitive dream. Let's like assume that the brain is a, a quantum computer that's imperfectly carrying information backwards from our from events in our future to our past. Well, we're not going to have uh, uh, one of the examples. Okay, here's an example um, that I give in my book. Sigmund Freud, uh, he dreamed in 1895. He had his most famous dream, and it's, it was the dream that, that, that gave him the idea that dreams are wish fulfillments. It was the nucleus of his book, The Interpretation of Dreams, the, the book that put him on the map. It was, you oh, know, the, the it, throat thing. Yes, it was the dream about Irma, uh, his patient. He was he was a hysteric, a hysteric. I'm sorry, a, a hysterical patient of his, also a family friend, who, uh, in his dream, I mean, in, in, in real life, he just had hysteria, but in in, in his dream, uh, he was looking at these weird structures, the, this this white patch in her mouth, and then looking at these these structures that looked like uh, the, the, in the nasal cavity, but they were in her mouth. And there was all, there was all these other little details about, about something weird going on in her mouth. And, and so, and, and other things were happening in the dream and sort of, he wound up interpreting it in this kind of typical convoluted Freudian way as having to do with the things going on in his life at the time. I mean, naturally like, like anyone would, but almost 30 years later, he developed precisely those white patches in his mouth, and it turned out to be cancer. And uh, he had these horrible, this horrible surgery that removed uh, his palate and part of his jaw, and and you could see his nasal bones from inside his mouth. Basically, everything uh, that is displayed by that patient in his dream in 1895 was actually the reality for Freud himself nearly 30 years later. Mm -hmm. So I'm arguing that, and I'm not, I'm not the first to argue this, that this was a precognitive dream, uh, which he misinterpreted in 1895. Uh, yeah, as an uh, unconscious, uh, he right. interpreted it as an unconscious theory, not yeah. as retrocausation, yeah. Right, right. But, you know, uh, imagine he had realized, I mean, there's no way he could, if, if the dream had shown him himself with those symptoms in 1895, if the dream of, was him looking in the mirror and seeing these, these symptoms in his own mouth, he probably would have realized, oh, <laughs> this is oral cancer from yeah. my smoking. Yeah. And he might have stopped smoking. Well, but then he wouldn't have had cancer in, 18, in 1923 and thus wouldn't have had the dream in 1895. So, so that's obliquity. This obliquity yes, that yes. we talked about 
is is essentially it's essential. It's part of what enables information to reflux into our past and not cause. I mean, the paradox can't happen. There's no paradox. I mean, that's that's a non that's a nothing burger. Paradox is nothing burger. I mean, there's no paradox. Hmm. So, precognition prophecy is always self fulfilling. Uh, so, uh, so, so you know, he had this dream, which you know, which uh, which he misinterpreted in a certain way, uh, and it it led in a roundabout way to the reality of his life in 1923, which was that he got cancer from smoking cigars his whole life and not realizing that he was, you know, that, that there would, had been this kind of dream premonition of that in 1895. Um, but you know what, there's, there, there, there's like a lot of rewards, uh, in this fact, the, 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 the fact that he had, his whole career was essentially based on this genius, if wrong, ultimately wrong interpretation <laughs> of this dream in 1895. You know, not only did it put him on the map and make him Sigmund Freud, the father of psychoanalysis, you know what, in about uh, in the next decade, when Hitler came to power, it was what, you know, enabled him and his whole family to escape Austria and go to London. So, you know, not only did did this mistaken interpretation of his premonitory dream uh, save his own life, it saved his family's life. You know, he, were, he would have died around the same time anyway. He died in 1939, probably would have died in the Holocaust in 1939 anyway. Yeah. Um, but he saved his whole family. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in a way, it's like I, I, I can't help but sort of see this one case, you know, as sort of this, uh, you know, what if, you know, counterfactual, you know, you know, if he had not had this, had, he had not misinterpreted this precognitive dream in a certain way, it actually would have been worse for a lot yeah. of people. You know, he, 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 he may have not have gotten cancer, but he would have died in the Holocaust anyway, and his family would have too. So yeah, he know, almost sacrificed himself in a way. Yeah, in a way. I mean, it's like, that's, that we're getting into speculation. There, yeah. You yeah. Know? Obviously we can't compare what happened to what would have happened otherwise, but still, um, the basic idea is, you know, you can't, but here's a, here, okay, take it back to this idea of precognitive circuits, which, which I sort of speculate about a little bit mm -hmm. in the book. You know, you could have, you can't have, you wouldn't be able to have a precognitive circuit, say, in an, let's imagine it as a safety feature in an automobile. Yeah. You couldn't, uh, you couldn't have a precognitive circuit that would tell you about an accident that is avoidable, you know, because, because then what would the information come from that you'd had an accident in the future? Like the, right. the, the information has to come from something that's going to happen. But, but you can have, you can have a precognitive circuit that triggers an airbag, uh, like a half second before the collision, which, which makes it that much more likely that the passengers are going to survive the collision. So you can, and this, this, what I, this is what I think is going on with sort of classic precognitive dream, say of like a, a car crash or a, or a, you know, plane disaster, you know, like people dream of, you know, people have precognitive experiences about air disasters and then they like, they'll avoid flying and the plane does crash. Well, you know, they might dream that they're on the plane and crashing, but then they, in fact, they survive, you know, because they're not on the crash or, or whatever, the, the, the yeah, dream, there's examples of this in your book, right? So, so the point is, we're you know, there's a benefit to getting warnings about events that we can't 
we can't avoid. Mm-hmm. Um, we are. You can you can attenuate them a bit. We can attenuate them. They're cushioning us in mm-hmm. some way, uh, and uh, so that's a benefit right there—a survival benefit. Um, and so I'm arguing that we kind of are oriented towards our own survival of traumas. Now, most precognitive dreams, if you study your own dreams, you start realizing you're having these things on a nightly basis. You know, most precognitive dreams are not about deaths and disasters. They're about, you know, things like, you know, you know, tripping down your stairs or, you know, your sink backing up or, (laughs) you know, some weird, some weird little, or, you know, kind of, uh, something you wish you hadn't said to a coworker or just these kind of like, kind of little emotional upheavals mm-hmm. uh, day. Um, but nevertheless, there, there are things you survive. There are things that you're kind of, uh, you may not, you may kind of wish they didn't happen, but they kind of change you in a little way, a little bit. They kind of redirect you a little bit. Those kinds of little turnings, those little turning points in your life. That's what your precognition is kind of orienting you towards. And it, I, in some way may be cushioning you. I don't know. I'm not, you know, I can't, yet say what the, you know, the exact function of a lot of these kinds of dreams are. But, uh, I think that they're personal. Most of them, they're personal. Yeah. It's very personal. And, uh, but in any case, I think it is, it is, uh, arguably it's, you know, we're, we're unconsciously orienting ourselves precognitively towards, uh, kind of, towards the the this kind of towards the edge of chaos or the edge of disaster, <laughs> yeah. you know and and we're it's kind of a steering function that that helps us navigate reality and and no it doesn't it doesn't ensure that we avoid getting eaten by the lion but it's probably making it a little more likely that we avoid getting eaten by the lion and that's you know and that's why such a thing would would be selected for in evolution yeah, I'm still trapped in linearity and exactness and all that. And I'm sorry, you're you're still having having to help me pull pull out of that idea. Um, uh, one of the Stephanie actually, one of my listeners said, cats and collapsing waveforms are int- intricately entangled, especially having to be released from confinement. <laughs> yeah. We're talking about about uh, yeah. quantum physics, and then when Schrodinger's cat comes up, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right, yes, yes, Schrodinger's cat. <laughs> Uh, okay, you've you've uh, given us two hours, an incredibly informative and wonderful two hours, and I thank you so much. Yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, Eric Wargo, the the book is Time Loops, Precognition, Retrocausation, and the Unconscious. That was just recently published. Is that your first book? I think it is, right? Yes, that's my first book. Yeah, and an incredible first book it is. So, and you're working on another one, I guess, or you've just finished another one. I'm working on a couple more, actually, a couple of follow-ups. Yeah, I, I, it's just, you know, finding the time to, to actually write. I'm sure you understand. It's yeah, a, completely. It's a challenge. Yeah. Uh, the blog is The Night Shirt. Check that one out. There's a lot of – one of my favorite, actually, things on The Night Shirt was the uh, one about um, uh, dream paleontology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. – to take a look at that, anybody that's listening and uh, comment or whatever. We probably have a hundred more things to talk about. And if you don't mind, um, I would definitely, I, I'd like to have you back again at some point. Yeah, I'd love to. That'd be great. Okay. Oh, what song do you want to hear? Oh, geez. Uh, <laughs> you can take 10 minutes to think. I don't care. Uh, a Day in the Life. Ah, okay. 
Once again, uh, Eric, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun, and I, I really liked hearing the uh, insight into some of the stuff that you wrote in the book. And I will finish the book before the next time we talk. <laughs> I promise. You better. <laughs> okay. No, this has been fun. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks so much. Take care. I saw the photograph He blew his mind out in a car He didn't notice that the lights had changed A crowd of people stood and stared They'd seen his face before Nobody was really sure if he was on the house Now they know how many holes it takes to fill